Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC football podcast. My name is Joey Weaver. I cover Georgia Tech from the rumbleseat.com on the SB Nation Network. Joining me as always, my co-host, Mike McDaniel, covering the whole conference for InsideTheACC.com. Mike, we thought there was a chance you are going to be playing a road game this week. Instead, you are back in your uh, your home studio, but hopefully you had a good week on the beach. Yeah, home studio, also known as my basement. It was a good weekend on the beach, though, Joey. Uh, pretty nice weather. Now back to the old grind of the day job and, of course, the podcast here. Episode 5, more previews. Yeah, it's a little later than we were hoping for this week, but... Certainly good to be back in the saddle. Like you said, we're going to do some more previews here in this episode, but I think before we get to that, we wanted to start with a few reader questions we got. All these came from users at fromtherumbleseat.com, but if, you are, uh, if you're on Twitter, you're following us at BC Podcast ACC. Uh, I am at FTRS Joey. He is at Mike McDaniel ACC. Uh, if you're following us, usually the you know, day or two beforehand we start recording, uh, we, we put these out on Twitter looking for reader questions. You can also send them in anytime uh, via those Twitter accounts or to our email account, uh, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. If you ever got a question ACC football related uh, or really maybe anything else, uh, you know, recommendations in movies or vacation destinations or whatever, um, feel free to send those in. We'd love to uh, interact with you guys, the, the listeners. Uh, but like I said, we have a few questions here. These come from the readers of From the Rumble Seat. Uh, they are... Luckily, not just Georgia Tech-focused necessarily, but uh, we'll start with the first one here from user Paul Benoit. We still haven't figured out if it's Paul Benoit or Paul Benoit, but I'm guessing Benoit here. Um, So Paul asks, which coach in the Coastal is most likely to be the first to leave their current position? So, Mike, he doesn't qualify this by saying, you know, by their own volition or, you know, by force or anything else. So given kind of the openness, you got seven options who are you looking at as the most likely to be out next at an ACC program well we were talking about this a little bit before we came on and I think the first coach we need to look at is the coach of the team that many consider to be the favorite to come out of the coastal division and that's North Carolina Larry Fedora was considered for the Virginia Tech coaching job um, has also been considered more recently for the Baylor coaching job since Virginia Tech, of course, hired Justin Fuente and all the stuff has happened at Baylor. Everything's hit the fan there, um, and, and they're you know they're working under an interim head coach currently. But being in the situation North Carolina's in, um, obviously a team that has been able to recruit pretty well talent-wise over the last couple of seasons, but at the same time they've kind of overachieved to a degree, and they got a really solid roster, a very good offense, an improving defense, and a very good coaching staff. And Larry Fedora, to his credit, has recruited extremely well, and it's helped to draw national attention, um, not just within the ACC, but of course outside of the ACC with Baylor. Um, So I think he's a guy that, you know, if North Carolina has another successful season this year and there might be a more palatable coaching job out there, I mean, I think North Carolina is a nice cushy position for him currently because I think that's a program that has 
you know, a lot of money behind them in the athletic department. Obviously, a very good athletic program there with their basketball team and, and of course, their soccer successes they've had in recent years as well. So um, a pretty solid athletic department there at North Carolina. But if an opportunity presented itself for Larry Fedora, I think he's one guy that could definitely consider could, could uh, eventually consider leaving. Yeah, like you said, he's a guy that I've I've heard his name in connection with several jobs as well, particularly you know the Baylor job as well as a little bit of speculation about like the Texas A and M job or Kevin Sumlin to leave. Um, funny that you mentioned they've gotten national attention, especially from a Baylor, because if you're uh, if you're a North Carolina fan, we're talking about Baylor football right now. I might be bringing back some uh, some PTSD from that Russell Athletic Bowl late in the year, but in general, I mean, I think honestly, first of all, you you are absolutely right that he has absoluted or he has elevated that, that UNC program big time from what it was when he got there through recruiting, through on-field results, everything like that. Um, but I think that definitely his, uh, his team philosophy, his offense, you know, kind of what he has done with that program would be a, a perfect fit in what is going on in the Big 12 right now. Um, just this high-powered, up-tempo offense and defense kind of hangs on for, for dear life, you know, so a better, for better or for worse kind of thing, you know, I, I do think that he would fit well in that Big 12 country uh, with, you know, the recruiting that has to be done and everything else, so I think that's a good option. Uh, the other one that I, I think has to be looked at is David Cutcliffe up at Duke, um, and we'll, we'll talk about his team here in a little bit, but you figure his career is closer to being over than it is to being, you know, just getting started, so uh, a guy of his age, we can look up here real quick, how old he actually is, but you'd have to think that retirement is a certain option. Uh, and then it, with a guy like that, you know, he's 61 years old, so might have some, some gas left in the tank. You never know. But a guy like him too, that, you know, has taken a Duke program that for a while has been, you know, pretty, pretty helpless and has turned him into what he is. You know, you have to figure there's some good coaching chops there and something that people would really be interested in bringing into their programs. No, definitely. And, you know, when looking at David Cutcliffe, it's not only the fact that, you know, hey, he could he could eventually retire here in the next couple of seasons. I actually thought he was a little bit older in 61, so I guess he might have a few more years left in him than even I thought um, when originally thinking of an answer to this question. But with David Cutcliffe, um, he's a guy that has elevated Duke program that was purely a basketball school. Now they've become kind of a mainstay in the ACC, at least in the Coastal Division, a team that's consistently uh, co- competing for the top three or four spots there in the Coastal, whereas, you know, five or ten years ago, they were the laughing stock of the conference. I mean, they couldn't win more than three games in a season. Now all of a sudden they're a team that's going eight and four, uh, seven and five at their worst. Uh, so I think David Cutcliffe, it's kind of surprising. I think you and I can both agree on this, that he hasn't garnered a little bit more national attention for other coaching jobs. It's really kind of interesting that his name's been overlooked as much as it seemingly has been over the last few seasons because when you consider kind of the high-profile coaching job, you know, his name really hasn't come up. Now, could it be because of his age? I mean, that's definitely a possibility. But I think that David Cutcliffe's a guy that has elevated Duke program, much like North Carolina with Larry Fedora, um, to heights that were not really seen um, you know, maybe five or six years ago when Duke was as bad as they were. So David Cutcliffe kind of coming in, he's entering his ninth season, the first few years obviously getting his feet under him and getting the program heading in the right direction. But all of a sudden now they're recruiting um, as well as any school in the state of North Carolina. And they're a team that's now kind of a force to be reckoned with in the Coastal and a team that doesn't really go away. They're that one annoying team in the ACC that's just kind of always hanging around games and you really have to watch for them. They're always well coached. 
So I think David Cutcliffe, you know, he could retire eventually here down the road, but I think there's also a possibility that he could actually end up somewhere else if the right opportunity presented itself. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly what what you said. And then I think if I had to pick a third candidate somewhere that might be another option to to leave, I, it, probably the dark horse here would be Pat Narduzzi at Pittsburgh. Uh, coming off a really good first year up there. Seems like he's recruited well early. That team only figures to get better here in the next year or two. And if he can string together about three really good years right out of the gates up at Pittsburgh, I could see another program kind of trying to pick him up. And we were talking a little beforehand about how it, I don't know that you're going to find a, a whole wealth of programs that are a step up from Pittsburgh, but they do exist, you know, and you never know kind of what opportunities might come available um, anywhere in the, here in the near future. So I think Pat Narduzzi is a little bit of a dark horse, but certainly I think Fedora is probably the favorite, then Cutcliffe, maybe then Narduzzi. I agree. I agree. So um, moving on to the second question, I guess, Joey. Um, which ACC quarterbacks scare you the most if your team is on the other side? And do the numbers back up um, that impression? Um, and do they have a solid cast around them this coming season? And that's coming from Intrect, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, so, Joey, I'll give you the floor on this one. Um, which ACC quarterbacks, aside from maybe the obvious, scare you the most? Yeah, right. So the, the two obvious ones here, obviously, being the Heisman runner-up, James uh, Winston, wow! Uh, Throwback, Deshaun. Yeah, Deshaun Watson. What year is it? Uh, Deshaun Watson up at Clemson, obviously, is as gifted as you're going to find, both uh, with his arm as well as with his legs, um, as well as just mentally understanding the system and knowing where to go with the ball. Uh, the other one being Brad Kaya, who is continuing to grow and develop as a quarterback, and, and seems like a great pro prospect at that position. Uh, I think either one of them figures to be as, as scary as you're going to find in the ACC. Uh, I think Kaya in particular maybe is, is brought down just half a notch by how much you know the talent around him is cooperating with that as far as offensive line and receivers and such, but at the same time you know, as, as gifted as you're going to find. If I had to pick another ACC quarterback that, that scares me uh, if if I'm trying to defend them, this this might sound a little a uh, little homeristic of me maybe, but is uh, Justin Thomas at Georgia Tech? Um, and you look at just the the physical gifts that he has. It's one of these things where you know you look at do they have a solid cast around them this year? If that's part of the question, it's like in some sense it doesn't matter. Um, Thomas is gifted enough with his legs that he's he's kind of a forty yard run waiting to happen. Um, and so I think if you run into players like that in those kind of situations, it adds a, a certain extra element that you have to defend against and one that is not easy to plan for. You can't guarantee you're going to contain it. And it takes away attention from the other things they can do as far as, you know, throwing the ball and, uh, and, and making good reads and things like this. I was going to say, speaking, speaking of 40-yard runs waiting to happen, um, I guess aside from Kaya, aside from Deshaun Watson, Justin Thomas is an interesting candidate, like you were just mentioning. I guess the one guy that I'm considering is Lamar Jackson, just because last year he's a guy that hurt you as much with his arm as he did with his feet. Um, a guy that ran for 1,000 yards, 11 touchdowns, averaging 6 yards per carry, um, and in addition to that, threw for almost 2,000 yards. And he's improving as a passer, um, and that's the one scary thing about Lamar Jackson is he's only going to get better uh, coming off of his extremely successful freshman year. So... 
Um, when looking at Lamar Jackson, only completed about 55% of his passes last year, but if he improves that and couples that with the running game that's you know already at an elite level, not just in the ACC, but you know across college football, you're not going to find many quarterbacks who run the ball like Lamar Jackson does. So um, he's a guy that definitely scares me. Do his stats back it up? I mean, yes, I think they do. Now his arm, of course, could get better. The completion percentage could get better. But rushing the football, it can't get much better than what he's already doing from the quarterback position. And from that standpoint, you don't want to, you know, you know, you obviously don't want him taking too many shots um, running the football. But he's a guy that that plays extremely smart, gets out of bounds when he can. But he's not afraid to make some guys miss in the middle of the secondary um, with his legs as well. So I guess Lamar Jackson for me would be the one guy to watch, especially if his arm, you know, his arm improves and he's able to complete a little bit higher percentage of his passes going into his sophomore year. I think Jackson has kind of the unique opportunity to be Louisville's MVP as well as their most improved player. Um, This year should see him develop as a passer in in a big-time way. Uh, I was just reading a story today about Louisville's spring practice where uh, Bobby Petrino basically forced him to become a passer and pass the ball and understand the routes and read the coverages and this, that, and the other, basically saying that you know, they'd snap the ball, he'd stand back in the pocket, and if Jackson at some point took off to run, it didn't matter how wide open the field was, you know, how good of a decision it was. Bobby Petrino blew the whistle and said, you're not running, you need to throw. Um, basically wanted to harness that arm strength, help him understand the throws that he has to make and, and kind of what he's got to do so that it does add that extra element of danger of he could legitimately pass the ball and throw for 300 yards against you. He could also run for 200 yards against you, as Texas A&M found out, as, as others kind of found out throughout you know, later in, in the Louisville season last year. So, um, like I said, a guy who could be you know most improved, he could also be the team MVP easily within the same year. And that, that is a scary thought considering uh, kind of how, uh, how impressive people thought he was you know, by late last year. All right, let's move on to the last reader question we're going to get to this week. Uh, if you if you asked one and we didn't get to it, uh, just know that we, we do have it on the log. We're going to get to it at some point. Uh, we'll make sure to do that, uh, so sit tight. But this last one comes to us from Full-Time Savage. This is another user over from the Rumble Sea. Grade A name there, yeah. Full-Time Savage. I thought so. This is a great question from him, I thought. So the question basically, so the, the, the conference seems at times like it's sort of viewed nationally as it's like Clemson, Florida State, and everybody else. Why is it that that perception kind of hurts the ACC more than the Pac-12, which has basically just been Oregon, Stanford, and everybody else, or the Big 12, which has been Oklahoma, Texas, and everybody else? Uh, Mike, I have, a, I have a theory on this. I'm going to start with yours, though. Do you have any kind of thoughts on how to approach this question? So you can you can look at it one way, and the, and that's the way that you know I'm not necessarily sure that the ACC is at any more of a disadvantage than uh, that than the Big Twelve is or the Pac Twelve is when looking at you know the top heaviness of the conference. But I think the one thing that kind of hurts the ACC, I guess, if you're talking about you know Clemson and Florida State exclusively, is they're both playing in the same division, um, not having them competing against each other for the ACC championship, I think that does hurt the conference. Now, North Carolina was so good last year that it didn't really end up mattering, and Florida State took a step back. So when looking at the ACC championship, you had Clemson against North Carolina. Those were the two best teams in the ACC last year. So we got a conference championship game that was kind of worth the hype, I thought. 
especially when considering how well North Carolina played in that game against Clemson. I mean, they were right in it there, even up until the last couple of minutes when uh, they attempted that onside kick that went for naught. But in my opinion, having Florida State and Clemson both in the Atlantic Division obviously hurts their two of the more talented teams in the country. Um, obviously, when looking at the preseason coaches poll, which you, you can't put a whole lot of stock into because no game's been played yet, but on paper you have two of the top four teams in the entire country when looking at Clemson at number two, Florida State at number four, and they're both in the same division. So I think that's part of the reason why it hurts the ACC um, more recently. But I think when looking at the Coastal Division specifically, you have a lot of teams this year that can definitely take a step forward and kind of contest a Clemson or a Florida State. I mean, I think Clemson and Florida State are for sure kind of the toast of the conference. And I think the third best team, at least in my opinion this year, is Louisville, and they're also in the Atlantic Division. But North Carolina is going to be good if they get good quarterback play. Virginia Tech's going to have a more exciting offense this year. Miami should definitely be more exciting with Brad Kaya quarterback and hopefully better offensive line play. Georgia Tech should be better uh, coming out of the Coastal as well. So there are a lot of teams that I think this year in, in both divisions have a, a, as good a shot as any um, of competing for a conference championship. And hopefully the Coastal can live up to the hype that the Atlantic's going to put out with Louisville, Florida State, and Clemson, whatever order you choose. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point that them being in the same division basically means that there's never going to be a scenario where they're both 12-0 and and they go to the conference championship, and really it kind of doesn't even matter who wins, they might both go to the playoff. Um, you're never going to have that scenario given that they play in the regular season every year and one of them won't get a chance to play in a conference championship uh, either way. So... Um, the other thing that I think about here a little bit is like the, the national brand of some of these teams. So you talk about the Pac-12, which has, you know, Oregon and Stanford has kind of been on top performance-wise for the last, you know, half decade. Well, the thing is that nationally and historically, like those have not been a couple of like blue blood type of programs. Meanwhile, like a USC and a UCLA and some of these, you know, maybe an Arizona State, something like that, like those teams have had more of a long-term success. And so there's there's always going to be this like perceived legitimacy for them. And so as long as you have that, meanwhile, you've also got teams that are high-performing. Um, same thing with kind of the Big 12, right? You know, you mentioned Oklahoma, which has obviously been very good the last couple of years. But if you look at top-performing teams there, it's Baylor, TCU over the last couple of years, uh, things like this. And so meanwhile even when Texas is not one of the best teams, they still are going to have a sense of legitimacy because they're Texas. Um, however, with the ACC, you know, Clemson and Florida State, you know, we were kind of butting our heads a little bit over, I think if you had to pick anybody else that has another national brand, it might be like Miami. But even them, you know, with their performance over the last decade, it really hasn't even been relevant. And so... I mean, it basically turns into a thing where, on a national level, like if if you get you know the the, the average you know low level college football fan, like Clemson and Florida State could realistically be the only ones they know about. Um, you, you, know, you go find any sort of casual sidewalk college football fan, they're going to know about Texas, they're going to know about Oklahoma, they're probably also going to have heard of Baylor and TCU because they've been so good lately. Um, a team like Southern Cal out of the Pac-12 too, you know, same it's same sort of principle like you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that has a little bit of something to do with it, but uh, it's kind of hard to say. And and maybe you get some different perspectives when you look at different regions of the country or uh, something like that as to why that might be, but uh, just a certain thought. Uh, Mike, do you have anything else on that? 
Question? I was just going to say, you know, I think if the Coastal performs to their capability, if a team or two emerges out of the Coastal Division, a lot of people are high on North Carolina, a lot of people are high on Miami. Virginia Tech should be an improved program. Georgia Tech should be back to where uh, we think they should be. So the Coastal Division definitely should be improved, but whether or not um, they live up to the hype that's kind of being put out there on paper kind of remains to be seen. But I think that if the Coastal Division improves, you know, I think the ACC will obviously stake their claim as one of the more competitive conferences in college football and kind of, you know, get rid of that criticism of, hey, you're Clemson and Florida State and everybody else. But as long as Clemson and Florida State are playing as well as they are within the same division, it's going to be hard to get rid of that criticism, I think. Yeah, and I think that the other thing we got to realize, too, is that I think the ACC is on the rise. Like you mentioned, there's some teams that are really improving across the conference. Um, in, the, in the preseason top 25 polls, obviously you had Clemson and Florida State at, you know, in the top four. You had Louisville as like a fringe top 10 team. And then you had North Carolina and Pittsburgh, who are somewhere between 20 and 30, depending on where you're looking. And I think you mentioned that Miami has you know gotten some votes, too. So five, roughly five preseason top 25 teams. I mean, that's not a bad mark at all. Uh, it's just a matter of continuing to perform well in out-of-conference games and kind of asserting that, that competency against some of the uh, the rest of the world of college football. But uh, thank you again for those who submitted reader questions. This is, has been good. We want to keep doing this as much as possible, so keep sending them in, again, uh, either on Twitter uh, or you know in comments wherever you find us or uh, via email, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, but, Mike, we need to move on and get into our season previews for this episode. So, to recap, uh, we've kind of been theming these around really, like, made-up kind of themes, so to speak. Uh, so, the first week, you know, a few weeks back, we did what we called our wheelhouse. So, that was Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. Uh, obviously, being the two teams that you and I both follow as closely as possible. And then also, Virginia being the in-conference close rival. Uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, the second week we did the former Big East, which was Boston College, Syracuse, and Pittsburgh. The following week, and that was last week, we did the the Blue Buds, the heart of the order, so to speak, and that was Clemson, Florida State, and Miami. So, Mike, this week it is time to talk about Tobacco Road, which is really the, the ultimate essence of the ACC and the geographic center and the political center and everything you might want to say about that. So this week we are talking about Duke, NC State, and North Carolina, trying to see what's going on on Tobacco Road this year. And so I want to start with Duke. Duke coming into the 2016 season uh, had a lot of staff continuation. There was nothing really big that changed uh, on this team from a like an administrative standpoint. And we've, we've made no bones about the fact that there is, uh, there is no love lost for Duke on this podcast. Uh, just... If we're being very honest and very frank with ourselves, you know, Mike and I are not big fans of Duke. They're frustrating to watch. They have frustrated our individual teams. But, again, we're going to try to be as, as objective as possible here. And we've talked about this, and there's a few different reasons for this, but I think this might be the year, legitimately, that the, the other shoe drops, and it, at the very least, Duke has a little bit of a down year, uh, if not gets a little bit exposed for what we think they might still be a little bit of. I agree, and this is the year, like you said, they could take a step back very well because of the quarterback position. 
they lose Thomas Sirk. He blew out his left Achilles. It's his second Achilles injury that he's had. Uh, his first injury was to his right Achilles. So he blows out his Achilles tendon. Um, he's recovering from that. Originally they were saying they weren't sure if he was going to be able to come back at all uh, in the 2016 season. Now I think they're a little bit more optimistic that he could make a difference maybe in the second half of the season, which would definitely help if he's healthy and he can be a, be a solid contributor for them. Um, obviously with him playing as well as he did last year, um, throwing for over 2,600 yards, he was also um, the team's leading receiver, or leading rusher, excuse me, um, over 800 yards rushing. Duke has really struggled with running the football conventionally from the running back position. Um, they had Shaq Powell last year, who was okay. I mean, he was an okay runner, but he's moved on at this point. They're going to roll with Jayla Duncan at the running back position, who was kind of used in a more limited role last year uh, for Duke, running for only 460 yards. So his role is definitely going to expand heading into this season. And I think for Duke to be successful, they're going to have to run the ball a little bit better, uh, more a little bit more conventionally from the running back position than they have in recent years, mostly because they don't have Thomas Sirk. Now, they do have Parker Bain. He has some limited game experience, but he's not necessarily a guy that you're going to fully rely upon, at least early on. So I think when bringing Parker Bain into the fold, um, I think you're going to have to rely on the guys around him, at least initially, until he proves that he can kind of make plays on his own. But as far as the rest of the roster goes, um, you know, they're returning some players at receiver. TJ Roming is, I guess, the one guy uh, to consider. He's a guy last year that um, played a decent role in Duke's offense. It's pretty remarkable, actually, that Duke was as highly rated as they were on offense in regards to the rest of the ACC. They were like, what, what was it, third or fourth best scoring offense in the conference last year, which is unheard of considering most people can't name two guys on their entire offense if you just walk up to them on the street. Um, but I think that this is definitely a year for Duke, at least offensively, to take a step back, especially with all the questions at the quarterback position with Parker Bain. Um, defensively, it's a lot of juniors and seniors. They have a lot of experience returning on that side of the ball. Of course, the one guy they're not returning is Jeremy Cash. He was an all-ACC performer, moved on to the NFL. They're really going to miss him, not only against the pass, but where he was most proficient, in my opinion, against the run. Uh, could line up as a linebacker. Um, could play in coverage, was really a guy who um, made that defense kind of go. Um, he, he was the playmaker on the defense, and they don't have him anymore. They do have Devon Edwards, a cornerback, who's going to be one of the top corners in the ACC this year. Um, he's going to be a difference maker, not only in pass coverage, he's also very good against the run. Continuing kind of the long line of, of defenders there at Duke that have had a you know, kind of had solid years within a secondary that hasn't been very good. Um, but Duke's going to have a couple of playmakers on that side of the football that I think are going to make a difference if Duke's going to become bowl eligible because we'll get into their schedule in a little bit here. But um, with the schedule they have and the players they've lost on offense, both due to injury and due to the fact they've graduated and moved on in other capacities, um, I think that Duke's going to have to rely more upon their defense this year than they have in recent years. Yeah, I mean, and that's the defense uh, actually does lose. What is it? Five starters um, lose three guys on the defensive line. Uh, Dwayne Norman at linebacker, and then Jeremy Cash, like you mentioned in the secondary. That includes their two leading tacklers from last year in Cash and Norman. Um, so there, there's a little bit of turnover here. There's going to need to be a little bit of retooling. Uh, plenty of game experience coming back though, and 
like you said, I think the the offense takes a step back this year. Um, obviously, with with the the situation at quarterback with Thomas Sirk uh, and that injury and kind of the the questions on what he's going to be this year, uh, which is far from decided or fully understood at this point. So is Parker Bame able to step up and kind of fill that role successfully, or will there be a, a little bit of a hitch in the giddy-up? Kind of hard to say. Um, they, so they need to be a little more of a maybe a run-focused offense. Um, the other thing is that they lost several of their top targets in the passing game uh, on offense, and so it just kind of makes sense. You bring back three starters in the offensive line, bring back uh, several of the top rushers, and so it just makes sense that that would be kind of the focus a little bit more moving forward. Um, but ultimately, like you said, I mean, I think kind of lean on the defense maybe, but there's a lot of there's a lot of production from last year that's being lost here on this team, especially if Thomas Sirk, who was not only the, the starting quarterback but also the leading rusher, if he can't go, um, I mean, you're, you're really searching for answers here on, on what they're going to do. So... Um, a lot of questions, and, and as far as kind of who's going to fill what roles on both sides of the ball, and at least you got Devon Edwards on defense, I suppose. Um, the other thing I noticed, too, is in the special teams game, punter Will Monday, kicker Ross Martin, both gone. Got to replace those as well. And so there's really a lot of production and, and experience that is being lost from last year in, in this Duke team. And Mike, this is not really the schedule which you want to be short for experience and and uh, you know struggling to find answers. Well, Joey, I'm not really sure how you want to attack this when looking at their schedule, but I guess we can start by looking at their road games: at Northwestern, at Notre Dame, at Louisville, at Georgia Tech, at Pitt, at Miami. Um. That's tough, and that's tough whether or not you're losing a good bit of your roster. Um, that's just a really tough road slate. Out of conference, when looking at NC Central, Wake Forest, the game against Northwestern, like I just mentioned, Notre Dame, I guess, is a de facto non-conference game, but they also have a game against Army. You know, NC Central, Wake, Virginia, and Army, I would handicap those as four of the more likely wins on their schedule. But after that, it's a crapshoot. I mean, we saw Northwestern last year. They looked like one of the top 15 teams in the country for a good good, good first half of the season. Um, and they're not a team under Pat Fitzgerald that's going to roll over, especially in a home game. Notre Dame, got to think that's a loss. Um, at Louisville, I think Louisville's the third-best team in the ACC. That's probably a loss. I think Duke will lose on the road to Georgia Tech. I think they'll lose at home to Virginia Tech. I think they'll lose at home to North Carolina. They have a lot of trouble beating Pittsburgh, whether they're playing them at home or on the road. This year they're on the road against them. I think they'll lose that game. I think they're going to lose against Miami. So I have them at four wins. I think their ceiling is five if they beat Northwestern. Um, and that's because I think the other teams in the Coastal Division that I mentioned there have improved, while Duke has taken a step back due to injury and graduation and you know Jeremy Cash moving on to the NFL and they're just losing a lot of guys on both sides of the ball and, and special teams I think this is the year they kind of regress back to the mean and you know five wins I think is the ceiling if they were to beat Northwestern but I think the more likely scenario is they only win four games yeah so that's a, a little bit of a dirty little secret about Duke the last few years is a lot of people know that David Cutcliffe's teams up there have finished with 10, 9, and 8 wins the last three years 
which is a lot for the Duke program. But the thing is that the, the out-of-conference competition in that time, plus Wake Forest every year, they've gone a combined 14-1 and in those three seasons. The only loss being last year to Northwestern. And also, I think the only other, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, the only other Power 5 team that they played during that stretch was Kansas. And this year, you get not only Northwestern again, but also Notre Dame. So the the out-of-conference schedule just got way harder than Duke has gotten used to uh, between both Northwestern and Notre Dame. Not to mention that you draw from the Atlantic, you draw Louisville, which is another added element of strength of schedule. Point being, this is going to be easily the toughest schedule that Duke has played in several years. And it just, again, it is not maybe a good year to be doing that with as many questions as you have uh, on, the t- on the team and on the roster. You mentioned that the away schedule at Northwestern, at Notre Dame, at Louisville, at Georgia Tech, at Pittsburgh, at Miami, I think it is extremely conceivable, if not likely, that they lose like every single one of those games. 0-6. I agree. They, it is very realistic to think that they might go 0-6 on the road this year, um, at which point you got to go perfect at home. A little more doable, NC Central, Wake Forest, Virginia Army... Virginia Tech, North Carolina, but even then, to beat either one of Virginia Tech, North Carolina, or much less both, would be quite the challenge. Um, I think I'm going to say that they go five and seven. Um, I think we've gotten used to a, a Duke team that is fully capable of stealing one from a coastal team not named Virginia. But I, I think that's about where it stops. You got wins over NC Central, Wake Forest, Virginia, and Army. And I think they steal one from somebody in the Coastal, but that's about as far as I can go. I I have to think there's a pretty hard ceiling at maybe like six wins if they manage to steal a couple. But uh, not looking like a, uh, a business-as-usual se- season for the Blue Devils up in Durham. And, and as much as, you know, as much as, again, we are not big Duke fans here on this podcast, we've made no bones about that, um, I, I think that that's a pretty actual, like, reasonable expectation is that they won't win more than six games, Mike. Yep, and I'm on board with that as well. Um, I think that Duke fans listening to this podcast will probably be a bit higher on Parker Bain than we are. You know, they'll say, oh, well, he threw for almost 600 yards last year. And you can say, yeah, he did that in garbage time. He had two touchdowns and one interception. We know nothing about Parker Bain. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. He had 78 passing attempts last year, which is more than most, but Thomas Sirk was hurt for a couple of those games. I mean, and, and in those games that he was hurt, Parker Bain wasn't all that impressive. So what do we know about Parker Bain? I guess we're going to find out this fall, at least in the first half of the season, because, I, you know, some Duke fans will want to come out and say, yeah, you know, Parker Bain is, is just as good as Thomas Sirk, can run the ball just as well, can throw the ball just as well. We'll see. 43 for 78, that's 55.1%. 579 yards, two touchdowns, one pick. So that's two touchdowns, one pick on 78 attempts. Also was sacked five times for a 6% sack rate. Um, So room for improvement. Maybe not necessarily cause for alarm if you're a Duke fan, depending on kind of your opinion of Parker Bain, but certainly not as good as Thomas Sirk. The Um, The alternative could be worse, right? I mean, it could be worse. It could be worse. It could be worse for sure. Um, but, yeah, ultimately it, it's not shaping up very well for, for Duke this year going into the year. And, and 
again, I'm going to pick them at five and seven, but you know, four wins or, or even less somehow might even be in the realm of possibilities. Um, Mike, do you have anything else before we move on? No, we can move on. I think we're good. All right, let's do it. Duke fans, if you're pissed off at hearing all this, at us. I am at FTRS Joey. He's at Mike McDaniel ACC. Bring the heat. Bring it on, gang. Tell us, Bring it on. Tell us how mad online you are. Let's go. All right, speaking of which, let's go across the state to Raleigh, North Carolina. Let's talk about the NC State Wolfpack, Mike. Um, so the big question here, so again, there was uh, quite a bit of staff consistency. They changed offensive coordinators uh, from last year, and they got rid of, let me see who this they got rid of Matt Canada, uh, might have gone back to his homeland. Um, <laughs> they replaced him with Eli Drinkwitz, which I think is easily on the conference all-name list, all-star team. Top three uh, or four names in the entire country, in my opinion. Pretty, pretty good. Um, he, he comes from Boise State, where he was the offensive coordinator. Um, and he actually brings a quarterback with him, as unconventional as that is. Uh, one Ryan Finley transfers in. He uh, This year he figures to be a fifth-year senior, but coming off an injury, there's a potential he could get a sixth year of eligibility with medical redshirting, but uh, we'll, we'll find that out later, probably after this season. And... Really, I mean, I think that becomes the biggest question for this NC State team, especially on offense, is what are they doing about the quarterback situation in the post-Jacoby Brissett era? Um, This is the first year in a couple that Brissett hasn't been the quarterback, and you figure Finley brings in a little bit of a different skill set. And other than that, I mean, you bring back a lot of receivers, bring back a lot of running backs. Uh, You lose three guys up front including a, a All-American left tackle and an All-ACC left tackle in Joe Thune. Otherwise, I mean, a lot of pieces are still pretty set in stone here in this, this Wolfpack offense. Uh, so, uh, you know, the quarterback situation here becomes the, really the big, the big question. And, Mike, I think you said you kind of had a, a little bit of a, a lead on what, what's going on with this situation right now in Raleigh. I was going to say before I get to that, I think if you're an NC State fan and Ryan Finley gets that extra year of eligibility, you're going to lose your mind, especially if you're a Jalen McClendon fan and think that he should be the guy at quarterback. Um, And all of a sudden, Finley comes in with an offensive coordinator that he's familiar with and kind of takes a starting quarterback job and plays mediocre. Uh, You'll lose your mind that he gets an additional year of eligibility, probably thrusting Jalen McClendon out the door should he lose a starting quarterback job. But... um, Right now, it looks like a two-horse race at NC State. So you have Jalen McClendon, the redshirt sophomore, highly touted, one of the top quarterback recruits um, coming out of high school a couple years ago. You have Ryan Finley, who, like you mentioned, here, senior, uh, could end up actually being a redshirt junior if he gets that second year based off of the medical redshirt. Um, They're competing right now for a starting quarterback job. But Jacoby Myers, he's a redshirt freshman. He sprained his ankle. Um, in the offseason pretty badly. Um, He's recovering from um, that ankle injury, and um, ironically enough, it came from playing basketball, so, you know, what are you going to do? I guess stop living your life. I mean, what, you know, if you're not playing football and you're trying to hang out with some some of your buddies and stay in shape and and shoot some hoops, I guess you can't do that anymore either. So he he hurts his ankle, um, comes back here, uh, this fall, and he's all of a sudden a little bit more healthier than you expect, and 
he's thrusting himself in the starting quarterback conversation, at least for the time being. Dave Doran would like to make a decision on who at least the top two guys are here within the next week and a half or so. So whether or not Jacoby Myers is a long-term answer or not, um, well, the answer to that will come within the next week or two. But uh, I think it's going to be a two-horse race here between Jalen McClendon and Ryan Finley unless something drastic changes and Jacoby Myers performs better than expected over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, bring back Matt Days, bring back Reggie Gillespie. Again, a lot of your leading ball carriers save Jacoby Brissett. Lose Shadrach Thornton after what seems like about a decade there at school. Um, bring back your top three receivers, including your kind of fullback, tight end, hybrid, H-back, Jalen Samuels. There is a lot coming back here for NC State. And so really it is what you figure, you know, will come out of the, the quarterback situation. You tend to think that... Uh, excuse me, Drinkwitz is going to be kind of tending towards his old quarterback, Ryan Finley, uh, who started the first three games last year at Boise State until he went out with an injury, like we said. But at the same time, you know, you figure that the ceiling might be higher for McClendon, a guy who's a better athlete, who was a high three-star, low four-star kind of rated guy, who might do a few things a little more along the lines of what Jacoby Brissett was doing for you last year. So kind of... Interested to see what the identity looks like on offense here for, for the Wolfpack. On defense, this sets up pretty, pretty well. Um, don't don't really lose anybody. Um, biggest loss being Mike Rose, you know, ten and a half sacks last year, your biggest pass rusher. Bring back all three linebackers, bring back, you know, the rest of your defensive line for you know for the most part. Uh, lose the safety in a corner in the secondary, but only losing three starters on the defense, I mean, you figure that improves from last year in, in a unit that was, you know, not terrible um, and is certainly capable of being dangerous and, and keeping this team in games. I mean, if, if I'm an opposing, you know, coordinator, if I'm an opposing fan, you know, Nick, like, should I, should I be afraid of the Wolfpack defense, Mike? Well, they yielded 37.2 points per game over their final six games last year, so they faded late. I think that answers my question. Yeah, so they faded late. Now, do you have to worry about them? I mean, it's another year of experience. It's a team that did perform pretty well over the first six games, given the circumstances. I think it's a defense you have to watch out for. I'm not necessarily sure that you should kind of fear them. Um, If you're an offensive coordinator game planning for the NC State defense, but at the same time, it's not a defense that's going to roll over against you either. Um, I think they're relatively well coached. Um, I think they show glimpses of being a pretty good uh, to above average defense in the ACC uh, for a good portion of last year, but over the last five or six games, it just kind of went for naught. The offense faded as did the defense. Um, you kind of saw them pretty fatigued there late in games. Um, losing composure, a couple stupid penalties, and all of a sudden you're you're in a, you're in a tough way there. So NC State's defense, look, they're going to have to improve. The offense, I think, is going to be there depending on who the quarterback is. You know, if it's Jalen McClendon, um, if it's Finley, they're going to have a good running game regardless. Um, they're going to have Matt Days there, one of the top running backs in the conference last year, pretty underrated just because he split carries with a bunch of other guys, but still almost ran for 900 yards, had 12 touchdowns from the running back position for NC State. They're returning Jalen Samuels at tight end. Um, they pick up Randy Moss's son, Thad Moss. Now, I'm not sure how big of a difference he'll make, but he's a pretty exciting recruit, a big-time target. Um, they, they have a pretty underrated recruiting class just because they bring in so many guys. Most of them are three stars or four stars, um, according to 24-7 Sports. 
but a ton of three stars, uh, no matter what recruiting service. So they're bringing in some quality talent. Dave Doran, it's a make-or-break year for him, in my opinion. I think NC State kind of underachieved a bit last year when considering how good Jacoby Brissett was supposed to be. Um, the defense kind of faded late. The offense never really got on track. They, they were never really consistent. They had a pretty good running game. Passing game was touch and go. There's a lot of talent on this roster, and I think this is a make-or-break year for Dave Doran. I think if they get off to a slow start, um, he could be a guy that's definitely on the hot seat uh, when considering at least the coaches throughout the rest of the conference. Um, I, I think that there's going to be a ton of pressure on Dave Doran just because of the level of talent that's already on his roster. So, Mike, I don't know how much you've kind of like listened to yourself talking about NC State or listening to me talking about NC State, but there's a lot of like, I mean, I think they'll be pretty good. Like, can't really complain about them, but can't really brag about them. And if that's not the most like NC State thing, I don't know what it is. Because, again, last year we talked a little bit about how, like, I referred to NC State last year as the bar. I mean, they were not raising the bar. They were not lowering the bar. They were just the bar. They didn't beat anybody they shouldn't have. They didn't lose to anybody they shouldn't have. They were pretty much exactly what we expected from them. And I think that that is, like, the definition of, like, a a pretty middle-tier average team. And so I, I just hear a lot of, from the both of us, just, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, they should be kind of good. Like, we can't really, like, commit to them being good, but we can't commit to them being bad either. So I think bringing in Eli Drinkwitz, I think, is going to try to remedy the offensive problem that they kind of had, especially in the passing game. So, hey, if the passing game improves to go along with the run game, it's already pretty solid. I, I think NC State can be pretty good, but if their passing game isn't any better than it was last year and the defense is about the same, they're the bar. So... Joey, I don't know if you have anything else. We can jump into their schedule real quick. Yeah, I was just trying to think of kind of what win totals might look like as far as, you know, showing improvement and such. Uh, they were 7-6 and six last year. Um, I mean, I, you figure if, if they can pull out eight or nine wins, that's, that's good improvement. And with this schedule, it might be a little bit of a stretch, but, I mean, if they were to do that, it would certainly show improvement. Um, we, we look at the schedule, uh, out of conference, William & Mary at East Carolina, home against Old Dominion, and then they've got home against Notre Dame. Notre Dame, obviously, the, the, the obvious buzzsaw in there that you can't ignore, and, and it would be honestly pretty hard to eke out a win there. Uh, to be fair, playing in Raleigh is not the easiest thing to do, um, and so there's a, a good, you know, it's good to have that home field advantage for that Notre Dame game. Other than that, William & Mary, Old Dominion, both should be pretty easy wins for NC State. And then at East Carolina, NC State is should be favored in that game by all means. Uh, that could be a, a little bit of a tricky one, just knowing the, the problems that East Carolina has caused people in the past. <laughs> um, Mike's looking at me like... I don't want to talk about it. But yeah, <laughs> not good. To be fair, Ruffin McNeil is gone, so who knows what that program looks like this year. Um, but... Overall, I mean, 3-1 and one out of conference seems pretty reasonable. You get into conference play, it's home against Wake Forest, at Clemson, at Louisville, home against Boston College, home against Florida State, at Syracuse, home against Miami, and at North Carolina. Um, obviously, a couple of extremely tough road trips at Clemson, at Louisville, and in back-to-back weeks. I would be surprised if they won either one of those games. Um, home against Boston College is doable. At Syracuse, again, a tricky road trip, but doable. Uh, Miami might be doable. You know, you play them at home. Obviously, you got them on the road towards the end of the year. 
So this is workable. You get Florida State at home. That's not really a good setup, although last time we said that, it did happen on a Thursday night, and that was, I think, the last time that Florida State had lost an ACC conference game, you know, other than Clemson until Georgia Tech did that last year. But there's some winnable games in here, um, and, and then if you start talking about, well, can they steal one, I mean, it's possible that NC State very well could get to, like, eight or nine wins on the schedule. I don't know. What do, you, what do you think, Mike? So I want to start by commending NC State on their out-of-conference schedule because last year their out-of-conference schedule consisted of Troy, Eastern Kentucky, Old Dominion, and South Alabama. So we knew absolutely nothing about NC State heading into their game against Louisville um, on October 3rd, uh, which, of course, they lost. But... Um, Looking at their schedule this year, William & Mary, East Carolina, Old Dominion, Notre Dame, that is a little bit better. Um, they'll beat William & Mary. I think they'll beat East Carolina. It's a tricky one on the road, but East Carolina no longer has Ruffin McNeil as its head coach who gave Virginia Tech so many problems, as you so eloquently alluded to. Um, Old Dominion <laughs> at home, I think they win that game. So I'm looking at 3-0. and Their first conference game is against Wake Forest. I'm looking at 4-0. Heading into a brutal three-game stretch against Notre Dame, which is at home, at Clemson, and at Louisville, I think they drop all three of those to uh, to go to four and three. I think the BC game is obviously winnable at home. I think that's five and three. I think they'll lose to Florida State five and four. Syracuse on the road, a tougher game than I think you'll expect because I think Dino Babers will have that program heading in the right direction by the time NC State plays them in November. That offense for Syracuse should be pretty interesting to watch, but I do like NC State to win that game uh, for their sixth win of the season. And then they have Miami and North Carolina uh, to close things out, one at home, one on the road um, with Miami and North Carolina respectively. I think they drop both of those. That puts you at 6-6 six and six and bowl eligible. And I think that uh, going into the bowl game, if you win the bowl game, whoever you play, you're 7-6. and six. Congratulations, you have the same record as last year. So... I'm looking realistically at six wins in the regular season. Could they get to seven? Yes, but I'm having a hard time finding out who that seventh win would be. Um, Clemson, I don't see it. I don't see it against Notre Dame. Don't see it against Louisville. I guess if you're going to pick one, um, could it be Miami at home? I mean, I I don't know. Notre Dame at home. The fact that you have some of your tougher teams on your schedule at home maybe gets you to seven wins if you pull off an upset. Um, gets you to seven wins in the regular season anyway. But I think six and six in the regular season, pretty safe bet. Um, if they're not six and six, I think Dave Doran's out the door um, considering their schedule the way it is. So, yeah, I think NC State goes six and six in the regular season. We'll see what the bowl game has, to, has in store for them. But if they go seven and six, then... Congratulations, you have the same record as last year. So will that get Dave Doran fired? Not necessarily, but I think if they don't become bowl eligible, he'll probably be out the door. Yeah, if you figure same record as last year, you get a little restless in the fan base at the very least. Um, I think I'm with you. You start 4-0 and against William Mary, East Carolina, Old Dominion, Wake Forest. I think you go 1-4 and over the next five games. Notre Dame loss, at Clemson loss, at Louisville loss. Home against Boston College, maybe a win. Home against Florida State, probably a loss. So that leaves you at 5-4 and four going into the home stretch of at Syracuse, home against Miami, at North Carolina. I think it, it could be done, certainly. Uh, 
I, I think winning at Syracuse is, is very possible. And then winning at home against Miami is also possible, um, especially using that home field advantage, like we said. I think regular season I'll put them at 7-5, and five, which, again, is pretty squarely exactly where they were last year. Maybe you win a bowl game, get to 8-5 and five at best. Um, but like you said, I mean, 7-6 and six seems like a pretty realistic expectation at this point. Maybe, maybe 8-5, and five, uh, depending on kind of the bowl matchup draw. Um, but ultimately, as you mentioned, I mean, getting some of these tougher opponents at home is, is an easier way to steal one, especially a, a tough place to play like Carter Finley. But... Um, Ultimately, yeah, it's hard to see a, a real good opportunity to to take that next step and get it into a you know a nine win kind of season, uh, just given the the level of difficulty that it is on their schedule. Yeah, it's year. not that the team's not talented. I mean, I, I do think they have a lot of talent on their roster. I don't think it's a slight against the coaching staff or the roster they have in place. But when you have to play Notre Dame, Clemson, Louisville, Florida State, and North Carolina in the same season, I mean, all four of those teams could be top twenty when NC State plays them. I mean, that's just a brutal draw, and you get three out of those four games on the road. Um, that's tough. Um, or I, I, I just named two home games, two away games. Never mind, I screwed that up. But anyway, that's that's tough anyway. Um, and, and Notre Dame, Clemson, Louisville in a three-game stretch, I mean, good luck with that um, in early October. So it's just a really tough draw for NC State. It's nothing against the team they have in place. But they're going to be breaking in a new quarterback. I think that's going to be a lot of the reason for concern. Um, even if the quarterback they end up choosing ends up being pretty talented, it's just a matter of, hey, look at who's on the schedule. You're playing some of the top teams, not only in the ACC, but in the entire country, Notre Dame, Florida State, um, and then a team like Clemson. So um, tough schedule for NC State. Six, six or seven wins, pretty realistic expectation at this point. For what it's worth, Bill Conley's S&P Plus rankings project 6.2 wins for the Wolfpack. So the bar, I think the bar. Yeah, yeah the uh, and that's and that's exactly what they do as the bar is they just hold down the fort, man. They they win those six or seven games a year, and and that is uh, that is their role within the conference. Um, like I said, NC State fans, at me if you're mad. Bring that uh, that mad online pain. Not. Mike, are you ready to I'm move ready to on? move on. I'm not sure what those NC State fans are going to say, though. It's like, okay, <laughs> give me a seventh win. That's, you know? that, that is a loose cannon yeah. bunch, those NC State fans. They're passionate, uh, though, to their credit. They sure are. I mean, you get that home field advantage from somewhere. Mike, let's move on. We, we have one team left to preview. Um, we are going to now talk about, I don't know if you want to call them the premier program in the state, but I guess if you didn't you'd be maybe hard pressed to find out who was but that is the North Carolina Tar Heels and if you had told me a year ago that I would be introducing them as your reigning coastal division champion Tar Heels I would have said yeah you tell me that every year um and last year they actually managed to get it done um the Tar Heels were really good they went on a good run uh throughout most of the 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 middle of the season Kind of sputtered a little bit towards the end. Uh, they they played a tough game against Clemson in the ACC championship uh, before kind of getting run out of the building by the Baylor offense uh, that was kind of Frankenstein together by Art Bryles in, in, the, uh, in the lead up to that game. But man, if there was an, an embarrassing loss on the schedule and maybe just an embarrassing loss for the whole conference, it was that season opener against South Carolina. I mean, that was that was a 
pretty unthinkable loss. Uh, that was a pretty poor game for UNC. A lot of turnovers, a lot of just poor red zone execution. Marquise Williams, Collins. Um, Marquise Williams, man, that one of those things like you had the opportunity to, to beat an SEC team kind of on opening night. It was a Thursday night game uh, in uh, in Bank of America Stadium up in Charlotte and just weren't able to Nobody get Nobody knew how bad South Carolina was going to be at that time either. So it tricked us all into thinking South Carolina was a decent team when they beat UNC. And then the Tar Heels managed to rip off, what, was that 11 straight wins? Um, they... Win against NCA and T, Illinois, Delaware. They win at Georgia Tech, Wake Forest, Virginia, at Pittsburgh, Duke, Miami, at Virginia Tech, at NC State. All wins. Um, they really got rolling, and it was they you know they kind of it was a little bit of a coming of age thing maybe where they they finally started to live up to some of the hype that we've been hearing about them in the preseason for for years now. A lot of it was driven by Marquise Williams had a great senior campaign. 3,000 yards passing, 24 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, uh, 1,000 yards on the ground, 13 touchdowns there. He is gone for 2016, and that is a big, big loss, um, probably the biggest quarterback loss here in the conference. Luckily for you know for UNC, there's still a lot of pieces that were around him that are still in place. Um, you know, Elijah Hood, leading rusher, TJ Logan, another very talented rusher, Tyson Williams, um, a lot of your receiving core returns. You lose Quinshot Davis, but return Ryan Switzer, Bud, Bug Howard, Mac Hollins, Brandon Fritz, tight end. You return a whole bunch of offensive linemen. And so now it becomes the Mitch Trubitsky show, Mike. Yep, it does. 555 yards, six touchdowns last year. So what do we have in Mitch Trubisky? Nobody really knows. He got in the game in garbage time. All indications are he is pretty talented. Um He's the only missing cog, I guess, in the machine that is the North Carolina offense that averaged nearly 41 points per game last year. Um, by the way, gold star goes to Gene Chizik. Congratulations. Um, you won a national championship at Auburn. You were completely irrelevant the following three or four years. You come to North Carolina where they had one of the worst defenses in the country two years ago. You completely revitalized the program. On that side of the football, um, they were one of the worst defenses in the conference. All of a sudden, they turn around, and last year, they vastly improved. I'm not saying they were the best the best defense in the ACC by any stretch, but they were much better than they were two years ago. So um, props to Gene Chizik on revitalizing not only his coaching career, but also the North Carolina defense. Losing Marquise Williams is huge, but you gain Mitch Trubisky. Not sure what we're going to have there, but you got a lot of really good players around him, which is encouraging. You named all the receivers. They're all as talented as they're receiving the credit for. Um, Bug Howard, a big target, obviously, standing at 6'5". You got Matt Collins at 6'4". Ryan Switzer, who's one of the best slot receivers in the entire country, one of the best kick returners in the entire country, returning in the slot. He's a difference maker and a game breaker um, out of that position. Running back Elijah Hood, one of the top running backs in the ACC that's extremely top-heavy, as we've, as we've discussed at that position. you got a lot of talent on the offensive side of the ball. You have an ever-improving defense. Every reason in my mind to think that North Carolina has an opportunity to win the Coastal Division, and if they're not going to win the Coastal Division, they're at least going to compete for that title. Um, when looking at the schedule, they got a lot of winnable games on there. Um, even though the schedule might be a little bit tougher than it was last year, I think the offense is going to be every bit as good, especially if Mitch Trubisky performs as advertised. 
and I, I'm really interested to see how the defense performs because when looking at how good they were last year and how vastly improved, I'm really interested to see how they are in year two with Gene Chizik because um, last year was kind of a feeling out process at the beginning, then all of a sudden they kind of got, I, I mean, the bowl game against Baylor is kind of an aberration, but they really turned things around. I'm really interested to see um, what kind of improvement they can make here in year two under Chizik. So a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball as well. MJ Stewart, Des Lawrence, two cornerbacks. Um, they got Miles Wolfolk also. Um, he's he's one of the top freshmen, um, at least from the draft class, the draft class, the recruiting class that they just brought in. Um, I, I really like UNC. I, I like Larry Fedora. I think he's got a good coaching staff in place. I really like the way he's recruited there um, in North Carolina. He's really won that state, which I think was huge. North Carolina really wasn't winning the state of North Carolina when they weren't playing as well. And now they've gone back to winning their state. They're kind of reaching out into Virginia, into South Carolina, getting that talent as well. And I really like the direction the Tar Heels are heading in. And I think that they'll be another team this year that will be one of the top one of the top teams to watch, at least in the ACC. Um, and I really like them in the Coastal Division. I think they'll definitely be the team to beat uh, coming out of that side of the conference. It's, it's funny that you bring up Gene Chizik and being in charge of that defense. I, I know I saw some article recently that was pointing out kind of the the interesting nature of the fact that if you look last year at the Coach of the Year, the Assistant of the Year kind of uh, award ceremonies, you see guys like Kirby Smart, who has the number one defense in the country at Alabama, Brent Venables has a top ten defense at Clemson, um, I don't remember who it was, the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma who had a top 10 unit. You know, all these guys that had some of the very best units in the country. And then you had Gene Tizik, who had, like, the number 65 defense in the country at North Carolina because that did qualify as, like, a legitimately excellent coaching job. Um, they were they were that bad in 2014 that getting to the point where they're about right around the average in the country was a remarkable coaching job by Gene Chizik. And, and the thing that I would point out is that with the way that this offense operates, the defense doesn't have to be great. It, if it's, you know, average to above average, that is plenty good enough for North Carolina to be dangerous against anybody that they play. Um, and so I think the big question to me this year, there, I, I have to think that there is some sort of drop-off from Marquise Williams to Mr. Trubisky, just because Williams was so good at what he did. He had done it for a long time. Uh, he, he was a really, really good fit in this system. And we've mentioned before that we both think that Trubisky is going to be very good filling in for him, has a good skill set, uh, has done well in the opportunities he's gotten to play. The question just becomes how, how much is, you know, is there ever a beat that is actually skipped? Or I just, I just can't think that Trubisky fills the whole thing you know, seamlessly. So I think there's a little bit of a fall-off, but like you said, I mean, there's every reason to think that this team will be just as good. Um, they, they lose a lot of kind of depth on defense. They bring back a whole bunch of starters, but they lose some of the main backups. Um, but this, this team figures to continue getting better, and I think the biggest thing that anybody would be afraid of is the fact that they are North Carolina, and we've gotten used to the idea that they're going to get hyped up in the preseason, and people are going to have high expectations for them, and then they're going to find ways to lose games. But that wasn't what happened last year, and, and I think until they go back to doing that, it's really kind of hard to say that that should be the expectation. Would you Would you agree with that, Mike? I'd agree. Um, you know, you mentioned losing the depth on defense, and the one thing I want to talk about real quick 
that I kind of didn't mention as far as depth options from a freshman perspective. I talked about Miles Wolfolk briefly, but Tamon Fox, a defensive end, that Virginia Tech was actually in the running for um, last year around National Signing Day. Fox ultimately chose UNC. Um, UNC was kind of firmly entrenched with him for a, a while, um, really interested in him. He's a big-time big time prospect. I don't know how much playing time he'll get behind senior Mikey Bart, but I think Tommy Tamon Fox will be in the rotation. Um, as far as other guys defensively that I think will make a difference um, for UNC heading into next season. I think Donnie Miles there um, is a guy that you need to obviously look at from the safety position heading to a junior season. He had 128 total tackles last year as a safety. Um, pretty impressive when you lead the team in tackles from the position. That means one of two things. One, your defense is really bad, or two, you're a big-time playmaker. He's a big-time playmaker, um, not only against the pass, but against the run as well, as exhibited by his tackling totals. Um, I think that North Carolina's defense, like you mentioned, they only have to be mediocre. If they're mediocre and the offense is as good as they were last year, they'll be fine. Um, they'll, they'll once again get to 10 or 11 wins, no problem, in my opinion, um, just based off of the fact that the offense has the potential to be elite, not only in the conference, but in the entire country, one of the top three or four scoring offenses in all of college football. They have that kind of potential. So as long as the defense just kind of hangs on, maybe improves a little bit based off of where they were last year, but continues to just kind of be mediocre to a little bit above average, North Carolina is going to be very good once again. And then obviously you have the same pieces as with any season of things like staying healthy and just catching a couple of breaks here and there. So, if, you know, things could go off the rails for kind of some extraneous circumstances, but overall, I mean, I think there's a lot to like again about North Carolina this year and, uh, there's plenty of reason to think they could be good. As far as getting the 10 wins, that, uh, as always, is going to depend on their schedule. Uh, if you want to move on there, Mike, let's let's look at this. So out of conference, they start with a neutral site game, the Chick-fil-A kickoff game against Georgia. They travel to Illinois the following weekend. They get James Madison at home, and then they get the Citadel at home uh, the weekend before Thanksgiving. So not really a murderer's row. I mean, that's two Power 5 teams, but Illinois is certainly beatable. The Georgia game is, is one that I, I'm really not sure what to make of it. Um, year one under Kirby Smart. Uh, looks like they're going to be in a transitionary phase between Grayson Lambert and Jacob Eason at quarterback. They theoretically get Nick Chubb back, but I can't promise you he's at 100% health. I think if, if Georgia has both Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle. That game could become a shut, like a a little bit of a shootout, a little bit in the same way that we saw from from the Baylor game last year, where the question becomes whether North Carolina's defense can stop the rushing attack that is going on with the Tar Heels. Um, I don't I don't know if they can if they can make that stop against guys like Chubb and like Michelle. Um, that could very easily be a game that's a shootout where Georgia has like 350 yards on the ground. So as far as the out-of-conference, that's a that's a winnable game for North Carolina, I think, and especially in any time they get in a shootout. I mean, this is a team that is built to be able to hang in there and maybe even win in shootouts. So if they can make that happen, I think there's a chance they go 4-0 in an out-of-conference schedule that has two Power 5 teams on it, including an SEC team. I'm with you. Um scheduling perspective the Georgia game's interesting like you, for all the reasons you just mentioned but the fact they're in a transitionary period at quarterback you're playing one of your base games of the season out of conference on the road 
Um, it, it's technically a road game. They're playing in Atlanta, so I mean, if you're a Georgia fan, you're traveling um, to that game in droves. Um, but I like North Car. I really like North Carolina in that game. Uh, I think Kirby Smart will definitely have Georgia's defense playing to their potential um, by the time they get to the middle of SEC play. But that's a lot to deal with um, in game one, just from a running back perspective with Elijah Hood, from all the receivers you have to cover, Buck Howard. Um, you look at guys like Matt Collins. you got to cover Ryan Switzer in the slot. I mean, it's kind of a matchup nightmare if you're Georgia. Um, you got to deal with all those different playmakers right from Jump Street, and I think that's going to be a big-time issue for them. Um, I really like North Carolina winning that game against Georgia. At Illinois, I mean, you might as well schedule an FCS team at this point. Illinois has been terrible for the last four or five years. They've been absolutely garbage, uh, one of the worst teams in the Big Ten. I don't see them even being close to competing with North Carolina in that one, so the Tar Heels should be 2-0 there. A game against James Madison at home, that should be a victory. Game against Pitt is interesting because Pittsburgh has a good defense, but they simply don't have the offense to score with North Carolina. Um, I don't think they have a prayer in that game unless they, um, unless their defense is able to produce a couple of touchdowns. I don't think Pittsburgh can hang long enough um, to make a game of it against North Carolina. I think the Tar Heels will pull away late in that one. So you're setting up for a game on the road in early October against Florida State, which could potentially be a game that college game day goes to, I think, because if North Carolina starts out with wins against Georgia, against Pitt, all of a sudden you're 4-0 and heading into a Florida State game. Florida State's going to be top three or four team in the country at that point as well. You could have two teams in the top ten potentially playing um, on October 1st there on you know maybe a college game day type game. Tough game for North Carolina. I'm going to say they drop that one just because it's on the road. At home against Virginia Tech, I like North Carolina to win that one. At Miami, I think Miami will definitely be improved, but they're not as good as North Carolina is at this juncture, so I like North Carolina to win that game. On the road at Virginia, like the win there. At home against Georgia Tech, I like them to win. Um, I like them to beat Duke on the road. They play Citadel and NC State at home to finish things out. I think they win both of those. I named one loss on the entire schedule there against Florida State. All of a sudden, you're definitely uh, in the conversation as far as, I mean, unless Miami or Virginia Tech or Georgia Tech, unless one of those teams jump up in the Coastal Division, North Carolina should have no issues based on their schedule if they get through the first four weeks unscathed um, getting to a conference championship. Yeah, I'm not so sure I see them getting through quite as unblemished. Um, I think you, 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 you're spot on saying that if they go into that Florida State game 4-0, that does sound a little bit like a college game day kind of setup. Uh, I'm right there with you that I, I don't think they're going to win that game on the road at Florida State. Um, I think that's that's a game they probably lose by a touchdown or more. Um, the, the the Pittsburgh one to me, I'm not so sure that they they will win that one. I think if Pittsburgh's defense is able to muddy up that game uh, and and kind of keep the score relatively low. Uh, they also have a rushing attack that could really cause a lot of problems for this UNC defense. And so I'm not going to sit there and, and write that down as a, as a win just yet either. Um, road trip to Miami might be a little tough. Um, home game against Georgia Tech. They performed much better at home against Georgia Tech than they have on the road. So I wouldn't worry about that one too much if I'm a North Carolina fan. Um I think there's a lot to like. I, I just I think eleven and one is a little lofty, especially you know games against you know Georgia, Pittsburgh, Miami, Virginia Tech. There, there's just there's a lot there that 
would have to go right. I have a hard time picking out exactly where the losses come. I, I, I do think there's a definite loss on the road at Florida State. Outside of that, I, I'm thinking like a 9-3 and three kind of regular season. There's a, there's a few landmines here, maybe 10-2 and two if you can kind of avoid uh, a whole lot of this stuff. But I think that they'll lose to Florida State and they'll lose to at least one other team, be that Georgia, Pittsburgh, Miami, whoever. Um, and then maybe more like 9-3. and three. But overall, I mean, a, another pretty solid, good year for North Carolina, uh, which is, again, that's I mean, that's, that would be pretty impressive given what we've gotten used to them in, in recent years before and I last think Joey, year. even a 10-2, and 9-3, I mean, I think that probably wins the Coastal Division. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's unless, you know, a team like Miami jumps up and, you know, Miami beats North Carolina and Miami all of a sudden is 10-2. But I don't see that happening with their schedule. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think North Carolina, you lose, you lose one or two games. I don't think there's a team in the Coastal Division that – is going to only lose two games other than maybe North Carolina. So even if you go 10-2, and two, you have a great chance of being in the ACC championship. 9-3, and three, you still probably have a pretty good shot. Yeah, I think a 9-2, and two, excuse me, a 6-2 and two conference record would be a pretty reasonable expectation. Possibility is 7-1. and one. And at this point, I mean, if you go 6-2 and two in conference in the Coastal Division and you don't make it to, to Charlotte – that's what we definitely call extraneous circumstances. Somebody, somebody's um, had a great would, year at that point. Yeah, yeah. If you're six and two, you are usually king of the mountain in the in the coastal division. Um, but yeah, somebody has, has really jumped up that year, like you mentioned. If if not, so I I think plenty reasonable to think that that maybe North Carolina is the favorite in the clubhouse to go back to uh, to Charlotte representing the coastal division. But as we know, it is also the coastal division and trying to predict how these things are going to shake out can be a little bit of a, uh, a futile effort at times. Yep, definitely. So I guess we'll just have to see what happens, but it'll be more interesting to see how North Carolina will perform if they do get back to a conference championship. Will they be a team that you know gets to a game against a Clemson or Florida State and can perform just as well or better than they did last year when they faced the Tigers um, in that conference championship and had a shot there to win it late? And keep in mind, like we mentioned earlier, I mean, this could also be a year where Larry Fedora is trying to have a little bit of an audition for, for the rest of the country on here's what I can do, you know, if he's looking for another job. Yeah, or we know. can throw a wrench in the whole thing. Mitch Trubisky can be really bad, and the Tar Heels only win six games, and neither of us know what we're talking about, so we'll just have to see what happens. Equally likely, if not more likely. Um, figures to be a good time in the ACC Coastal, as always, but... Anyways, Mike, I think that about wraps it up for our team previews for tonight. Uh, this has been fun, as always. Uh, we've got one more set of these coming up next week. Um, I figure I can go ahead and tell you all that next week's section is probably what we'll call the potpourri section. or The, the honor uh, section? The honor section? I don't know. What? I don't think we want to call it that because we want people to still <laughs> listen to the podcast, but... Yeah, there, there are three teams we've not yet previewed. Um, you can kind of guess who they are. There's two that are actually in the ACC and one that's mostly in the ACC, uh, which kind of gives a little bit away right there. But uh, we will be kind of finishing out this whole preview series, and then we've got another couple of weeks. But, man, we are getting we're getting close. Time's, time's coming up. that It's about time to get this season started, man, and I, I am we ready to rock. just under a month away. Um I think, what is it, three weeks from Saturday? Uh, Three weeks from this coming Saturday we'll have football. So 
we're getting real close, Joey, to finally putting on the pads and seeing if any of our predictions amount to anything. My guess is absolutely not, so we'll just have to see. Bringing back some of that sweet, sweet ACC action slash chaos. Um, man, that thing that's been missing from your life that you had no idea. But, um, yeah, Mike, like I said, this has been fun. We'll, we'll do it again next week. Yep, sounds good, Joey. Thanks. And until then, if you want to reach us, like we said on Twitter a few times, we are on Twitter uh, at BC Podcast ACC. I am at FTRS Joey. He's at Mike McDaniel ACC. You can hit us up on Gmail at basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on SoundCloud. We are on iTunes. We are on the Google Play Store. Go ahead and subscribe and review and do all those neat podcast things. Uh, and, and as always, send us your feedback. Send us your questions that you want us to address. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys, the listeners. But uh, for Mike McDaniel, I'm Joey Weaver. We'll talk to you next week.